The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Hey geeks, Adam here. Up top, before we roll with the episode, wanted to let you know, uh, apparently my kids snuck into my office like a group of gremlins and messed with the levels on my microphone before I started recording this episode. And as a result, I kind of sounded like Bane as I was recording. And unfortunately, uh, I did kind of blow out the mic a few times my volume was up very high and so I had to adjust that to the best of my ability for this episode I think we salvaged it okay but just wanted to give you a heads up so as you're listening you're just like oh what's going on here that is uh, not the normal quality you've come to expect but otherwise this is a super fun episode fantastic conversation to come so let's get into it Three men, with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme, and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 47 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. I'm Adam, and, you know, a certain legendary bearded X-Men artist named John has talked smack about a lot of other creators over the years. I guess you could say they all got burned. But tonight, we're ready to keep it cool with a pair of returning guests who are super chill. They've each appeared separately on Wizards in the past, but since they are podcast partners on the Cult Film Club podcast, we decided to see what fun they'd bring this time around with their powers combined. CFC Twin Powers, activate! First up, it's the man who counts Starman among his favorite comic book heroes. No, not that Starman. No, no, not that one either. Yeah, yeah, that Starman. It's Paxton Holly. <laughs> What's up, Adam? And I love that's how you described it. It is that <laughs> level of Starman. Yes, yeah. I do love that Starman. And to his virtual left, it's the man who wishes the 90s sitcom Mad About You would have just been an adaptation of Mike Allred's Madman comics. It's Sean Robert. I am very stoked that the walls of the podcast multiverse cracked open long enough to allow me to leap from CFC headquarters north to the Wizard Studio. Um, I both want to talk about comics and... Um, assure you that in my version of the multiverse there was indeed a madman sitcom in the 90s and it was called freakazoid (laughs) (laughs) i love that cartoon that was a good cartoon i like it was excellent Well, you know what, guys? On Cult Film Club, you have covered superhero theme movies like James Gunn's The Specials, which predates his big-budget Marvel and DC work, 1994's The Shadow, a character who has a nice history in comic books and inspiring comic book characters, the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was definitely based on the original Eastman and Laird books, even Superman for The Quest for Peace from 1987. So, truthfully, when you think about it, most comic book movies of the 80s and 90s are cult classic so are there any more superhero flicks on the horizon for the podcast anything on your list that have been sitting there for a while well i can't speak for sean like he tends to go more weird and culty than i do so if it was on anyone's list it would probably be on mine i I wouldn't doubt if sean has one or two in there but i'd say on my list i'm not going to say on my short list but on my long list i do have a couple like i could see us maybe one day doing the 1989 punisher movie i could see us maybe doing mystery men from 1999 but one i know sean 
Sean and I have talked about that we would do is the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie. That one is kind of insane, and I could totally see us doing that someday. <laughs> <laughs> and it was funny because I literally just tweeted out something about the trading cards tonight from that movie. So <laughs> I'll definitely echo the 89 canon Dolph Lundgren Punisher film because I, I think that movie needs to get more love, and it, it doesn't, sadly. And I'm pretty sure... Sooner or later, Jamie's going to convince us to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think she's watched it 50 times since the pandemic started. <laughs> That's her comfort film, huh? Yes, exactly. And she really, really, really wants to talk about it. <laughs> you know, last episode, speaking of Secret of the Ooze, we were doing a casting call for Gen 13, the movie which they had in the issue. And I decided Ernie Reyes Jr. as grunge from Gen mm. 13. Can't you just see Surf Ninjas, Ernie Reyes Jr. just being the goofball with a tattoo on his chest? Yeah, totally. Ernie Reyes okay. Jr. needed to be in more movies. Yes. Totally. 100%. All right, well, and we are going to be talking about so many superhero movies tonight. This is like one of their first big movie-heavy issues. But before we do that, it's time we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. <laughs> Here's the thing. As I was reading through the issue, all the letters this month are pretty boring. There, there's an old veteran who was the original writer of Turok comics in the 60s. He's complaining that Valiant hasn't paid him any royalties for reprinting his stories. That's like the lead letter. There's a question about comic book sound effects. Why Amazing Spider-Man has more issues than Fantastic Four, you know, etc., etc. So I decided, instead, you know, of going into all that stuff, it's just uh, there was nothing super exciting to discuss. We would do a quick Robin. Reading Rainbow. Why are we doing a Robin's Reading Rainbow up top? Because there is a four page preview for a comic called Punks. P-U-N-X from Acclaim <laughs> Comics that is uh, written and drawn by Keith Giffen. So I'm very curious, guys. What are your thoughts on this kind of goofball teaser for this comic? So I like Keith Giffen. I am I am actually a fan of, of him. So I was interested to read this, but man, I didn't get it. It was weird. And it's like, it kind of, it re- I mean, I guess it kind of had a cool vibe. Like Adam and I, we talked about Ultraverse the last time I was yeah. on. And this kind of had a feeling of being in that universe, like an Ultraverse kind of a thing. But it was also super like <laughs> super unsubtle like like one of the heroes mm. was wrecking balls and it had these balls <laughs> attached to his crotch and then another girl was complaining about wearing a padded bra like it was weird and i wasn't sure i fully got it but four pages wasn't enough to kind of wrap my head around it so i didn't love it but i was kind of interested to see where the hell they were going with it yeah this wrecking balls guy if you notice he's just got a million straps all over his suit too <laughs> so it's definitely a mockery that. of the era <laughs> Yeah. So I'm also a huge Keith Giffen fan. Um, I was definitely a, a Giffen nerd uh, back in my collecting days. Uh, I discovered his stuff on Ambush Bug, like right around the time I was reading Ben Edlund's Tick stuff. And Ambush Bug was such a great like spoof on the DC comics and, and all the kind of superhero shenanigans and stuff like that. So I was definitely aware of this stuff. I had pretty much picked up everything Giffen had done at this point between like, or at least this like his solo stuff, like the Heckler, his oh, trencher yeah. work for Image. <laughs> so when, uh, when Punks came out, Giffen was on my radio. I was definitely well aware of it coming out, but it was Valiant, and I was not a Valiant kid. I barely collected any DC comics. Mar- I was a Marvel kid, so Valiant was just a step too far for me. But I did pick up the comics back in the day, and from what I can remember, 
the whole thing is basically like a joke about acclaim buying valiant wow. um, it's so it's so weird it's a three issue miniseries that is just deep into like valiant nerdy stuff so if you just love the meta comics commentary exactly okay yeah <laughs> there's a lot of the stuff he did in like ambush bug and heckler and stuff like that there's a lot of fourth wall breaking and right i remember there's, that from heckler yeah yeah there's there's bits where like like one character has to give a message to another character and they literally hand them the speech bubble that was the message from the panel before <laughs> like they hand the speech bubble over <laughs> at the end of one of the issues there's there's a kid that's giving a recap to one of the villains and you find out that he's giving the recap from the the punks issue that you're reading in your hands right now he's also reading it <laughs> it's, it's silly stuff like that there's a great bit where they pull scott mcleod in like if either of you have read understanding comics yeah that whole thing there's a whole like four page spread where he ports scott mcleod into to break down a 90s era comic book fight wow i feel like i gotta read punks now i mean this is like it's like recommended reading for the wizards crowd who probably most of us ignored it at the time right so So i i would say that you pretty much have to be a heavy valiant nerd to get 90 percent of the jokes because i did not still have copies of the the things i was flipping through them and it's like i still don't get most of the jokes i don't (laughs) i just don't get the references it's pretty hilarious also because like like you say with all the fourth wall breaking literally at the on the last page of this preview it says wizard price guide at the bottom oh, yeah, corner gets of the, the page price guide. yeah so he, he lists the punks comics and then like you say when they go into the whole acclaim but really valiant universe you have solar man of the atom is on a phone call and he's yeah. like really don't want to have anything to do with him unreasonable <laughs> I, I don't see how you can say that i mean i i put up with all that unity nonsense didn't i no <laughs> no I, I can't see how crossing over that punks book can don't hand me that i've got jurgens dan Dan Jurgens, that's right. So I don't think I have to lower myself to what? Ah, uh, gee, I never really gave it much thought. Cremated, I guess. Why do you ask? <laughs> getting death threats if he doesn't appear as a cameo in punks so i mean go for it giffen give us the nonsense (laughs) i will say he gets in a couple uh leafeld burns so uh if you're not if you're not a fan of leafeld maybe pick it up this is it i'm I'm checking it out tonight i'm on board now (laughs) (laughs) well that's a headline we didn't see coming here but uh i think speaking of headlines it's time we get into some wizard news all right, so first up here, Chris Claremont, the famed writer of X-Men for 16 years who bounced around after that to random Dark Horse comics projects after, you know, his kind of... It wasn't really a falling out with Jim Lee so much as a falling out with Bob Harris, the editor, and all this stuff. So now he has landed at DC Comics with a new title called Sovereign Seven, which reportedly involves royalty from different dimensions who have lost their thrones, ending up as a super team in the DC Universe. And they're saying it's unique because this is a creator-owned title, but it's operating within DC continuity. So it's like, what would people from another dimension think of the DC universe if they were suddenly plunged into it? So I have to ask you guys, what do you know, if anything, about Sovereign 7? I was just aware of it when it came out. So I loved Claremont's run on the X-Men. That was my bread and butter. That was my main reading material especially when i first got into comics and like around the time he started you know getting unhappy and we kind of get this feeling that he was going to leave the book and all this stuff i i started reading some of the other stuff he was doing outside like mainly like his novel work like he did a a series of sci-fi novels called grounded it started with one called grounded which was basically just a robotech (laughs) ripoff and 
Then he did a uh, sequel series to Willow, starting with a book called Shadow Moon. And that is, if you're a fan of Willow, the movie, do not read the books because it is a slap in the face to anyone who enjoyed those movies. Like, oh, no. He painstakingly goes out of his way to destroy any goodwill that the movies had. Um, so so after that, like I just I was had zero interest in, in pursuing any of his stuff that wasn't the X-Men. I guess I'm like showing that, yeah, the Claremont X-Men was kind of like I was all in on that one. And Inferno is one of my favorite things. So when I remember this coming out. I didn't, I didn't know it was creator owned. That's kind of interesting. But uh, I, re- I just remember it being a weird group that I didn't understand. And like I read an issue of it and I was just like, what's going on? I don't I don't get this. It didn't make any sense. And it had a very vague title, the Sovereign Seven. It reminds me of like Secret Six. It's like this number and a word. And I just don't get it. And so uh, like I, d- I didn't go much further than that. And I don't remember it lasting very long. Well, so that's the thing right because for me like i was not an x-men guy i wasn't on that train when claremont left it meant nothing to me like i read a few you know like classic x-men books so i knew about some of the early stories but like i i was not aware of sovereign seven at the time at all but i will tell you every quarter bin i dig through has like full runs of sovereign seven and this <laughs> thing did go on for like a couple years like there are oh, a lot of issues of sovereign seven i don't know why i could only assume because yeah it was chris claremont they're like well let's keep giving it a chance a little bit <laughs> right. more i'm sure it's gonna catch on <laughs> we'll sure. yeah as i say he was he was such a big writer at the time especially because his, his run on x-men was so long mm-hmm. and iconic yeah yeah so i'm sure dc image like i'm sure they all dark horse they all wanted him to come over and like give them that juice but yeah he didn't have any left yeah that's for sure pax what's up next year All right. uh, Hot new artist Mike Diodato Jr., who gained fame for his work on Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman ripoff Glory at Extreme Studios, (laughs) is revamping Thor at Marvel with issue number 491, which includes a brand new Extreme 90s costume. (laughs) You guys saw this. There's a sketch in here. What is your reaction to this? Uh... It's 200% everything that's bad about comic character design in the 90s. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. This this is, if you distill everything down to why I quit reading around this time, that costume is it. Yeah, I mean, it is intense. It is as many spikes as they could fit down his legs, on his shoulder pads, on his gauntlets, like massive spikes. And then Mjolnir is like three times the size mm. that it normally is. It has spikes now with a giant chain, chain. hanging from the yeah. bottom. And you're just yeah, like, he, what? He, he had more hair than all of Bon Jovi. Yeah. Bon Jovi combined. Like. I was like Medusa hair going on. And I, I looked up, I looked up the actual, because I wanted to see what it, if that sketch was actually what they went with. They took away some of the spikes. So I was like, at least, you know, there, there's some lines that they won't cross. And that's, I guess, all the spikes that they put on there. But uh, it was pretty close to that. And yeah, that I just was not loving it. To be marketable for that era, I mean, that's what you had to do, right? Daredevil got his armor, you know, Captain America <laughs> got armor, you know, like everybody. True is getting new costumes so you got to get everybody's attention somehow so I, I don't know how many more readers they picked up i guess we'll see how long this lasts maybe i'll go and look at the covers and see like by 494 <laughs> was he already out of that costume it's very possible sean what do you have for us 
So comics legend Stan Lee has written a book called Best of the World's Worst, which has nothing to do with comic books whatsoever. Instead, Lee chronicles the world's biggest blunders with categories like worst jobs, worst laws, crimes and punishment, or the worst entertainment, such as John Wayne being cast as Genghis Khan in the 1956 movie, The Conqueror. Such an odd piece of Stan Lee history. Since the worst is a subjective term, we're willing to bet that a lot of this info has not aged well. But that just seems like, why would somebody approach Stan Lee and say, can you write a book about the worst things in the world? Just tell us what you think is the worst. Or is it more likely, can we just slap your name on this? But again, why? I, I was wondering, did, did Lee pitch this? So he's like, I want to move a little bit away from comics and I want to do worst things. And it's like our worst list. Next is going to be, he's going to be doing like Letterman type top tens, you know. And it, The worst move you could do moving into a new career or a new arena, do not associate yourself with the word worst. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that is a headline that, that is just waiting to get you in trouble. So if anybody out there bought this book just because Stan Lee's name was on it, please contact us on social media at Wizards Comics. We got to know. Totally. Maybe like behind the scenes, like this is what Lee did all the time. Like when he was in meetings and stuff, he was just like <laughs> throwing out anecdotes about, oh, you know what the worst was? The worst was the time blank, you know, and he was just full of them. Like he had his back pocket just full of these. So someone's like, you should write a book. <laughs> that seems very likely, actually. <laughs> All right. Well, now, uh, as we've been following over the last several issues, speaking of the worst, Marvel had bought out Heroes World, the comics distributor, to become their exclusive distributor. So now DC has struck an exclusive deal with Diamond Distributors. Though they are not purchasing Diamond, nor will Diamond offer only DC product, it's just more of a way to assure that the pipeline for ordering DC books stays open now that Heroes World is owned by the company. Competition. And if you listened to last episode where we were talking to Brian Cunningham and Sean Ani, like this was a huge shakeup in the industry. And uh, yeah, like I mean, distributors went out of business. I will tell you in the next issue, there's a further report of like lawsuits and everything else. So this was just causing a frenzy. I don't think most of us understood, but we were just buying comics. But for the retailers and for the publishers, this was like scrambling to say, how do we get our books out there? Yeah, exactly. I remember this being a huge deal at the time. My local shop that I that I frequented all the time. I remember the the guy that owned the shop was super pissed because he used to get everything through Diamond. He just had the one book, <laughs> and it's just like I I don't want to have to split up my order. It's like uh, I just remember him being really pissed. <laughs> but I love this this little thing you read, Adam. It's such non news comparatively, and so it's like it's just like oh this is not a big deal, you know. It's just yeah. like it's kind of an odd odd news item because it's really no news whatsoever. Yeah, it's just basically <laughs> saying we know that Heroes World is not going to carry our DC books, so just keep buying through Diamond. Sticking with uh, Mike Diodato Jr. News, the Brazilian artist will be drawing the variant cover of the Helena Bloodfire crossover issue from Lightning Comics, which will feature a nude Helena, so the issue will be shipped in a black poly bag. Also from Lightning Comics is Creed by Trent Canuga. I never knew, understood how to pronounce that because I've never heard anyone say it. I've never Kenny heard anyone Yuga? say it. Yeah. So yeah. Which uh, we will be discussing that a little bit later on in the show. Yeah. So I mean, nude comics, guys. Did you see them? Did you buy them? Did you want them? I could. I remember them. Uh, I couldn't see them because they were all in black poly bags. <laughs> Everyone put them in black poly bags. Like a lot of my places didn't really carry them, but I'd heard about them. I mean, I wanted one, but how could I take it out of the black poly bag? It wouldn't be worth any money. <laughs> that, that was the issue. 
yeah. <laughs> it was the 90s, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I will tell you, though, you know, one of the other books that was along these lines that was always advertised in Wizard, and I remember seeing on the shelves, it was this book called Razor. And I mm. just went and looked this up the other day just to, like, see what was this book about? Because we've been kind of going on this bad girl's journey in our mini episodes. And that is not bad girl comics. That is, like, straight up pornography, like, 100%. <laughs> I was like, what? In the, like, it's literally, it's just sex scenes. There's a fight scene, wow. and then there's sex scenes, like, really bad. I was just like, wow, I, I yeah. can't believe this was just being sold out there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the closest I ever got to that was I got addicted to the bondage fairies for a while just because I got into manga and anime stuff in the 90s, and that was pretty much just straight-up porn stuff, too. But the art was really great. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of some great art there, Sean. So a sequel to the Cry for Dawn series from Steven Linzer called Cheer for Dawn will have a cover with a blacklight premium edition gimmick, which reveals fluorescent colors when held under blacklight. You've interacted with him, right? Oh, he, he was a Dragon Con all the time. So I was always passing by his table. I, I bought the Dawn series. I was totally into the, all the serious stuff. But you, you didn't get the blacklight premium edition? No, <laughs> no. You know what? All those ones that were like retailer premiums where, you know, the retailer had to order like 100 copies and then they got the free yeah. crazy one. It's like those were always like, at least at the comic stores in my area, like four or five hundred dollars behind the counter. <laughs> <Oof>. And yep. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Too rich for my blood. I even if even if I'm a super collector of that one particular thing. So thank God there was never like a Poison Elves yeah. <laughs> retail edition. <laughs> I still think it's hilarious, though. Cry for Dawn. Cheer for Dawn. Give Dawn a wave for the next one. Like, what's it going to be? I swear. Closing out, though, on the gimmick cover tread, guys. You know, we thought it had died out. We got rid of our gimmicks a go-go segment. Because for many issues, there were no gimmicks happening. I think we're going to have to bring it back. But we hear that the old standby of Chromium covers are promised for a new batch of number ones from Entity Comics. Never heard of them. There was (laughs) Nira X, Cyber Angel, Aster the last celestial and shyana so all these number one issues will have chromium covers but also not to be left out extreme studios promises a wraparound chromium cover for issue number one of a new prophet comic written by chuck dixon drawn by stephen platt because yes they must be drawn <laughs> by stephen platt <laughs> always i think it's interesting though because initially like i think there was like wildcats number two or three had like a little kind of holographic shiny cover enhancement but generally speaking the image books didn't do that because they claimed we are the gimmick our art Mm -hmm. is the gimmick but it's been a few years so like well we gotta do something to get their attention (laughs) also issue three of tyrant the comic from steve Bissett about the life of a dinosaur has a special gold edition which will ship with every 10 copies of the regular edition ordered by a retailer like sean was saying there the special incentive but this one was not publicized so as to not artificially inflate the sales Bissett just said he wanted to give a thank you to the comic book retailers who were buying the book anyway giving him support so that's kind of nice and hey surprise gold edition there you go now put it behind your desk and charge five hundred dollars <laughs> give him a I little boost with books like that like with the indie books like that i wonder how many they were actually ordering like if did any gold ones actually ever ship or is oh, like, yeah. point yeah is yeah. that sitting on is like his couch made out of them or something <laughs> he's got a suit made out of him that would be great actually somebody needs to make a chromium cover suit uh for me i'll send you (laughs) my measurements (laughs) oh but uh speaking of getting dressed up and going on that red carpet guys it's time to get into heroes in motion 
So first up, we hear that James Cameron, who has tried to get a Spider-Man movie made for the last few years, we keep getting reports and nothing happens, uh, he reveals that he was also working on a treatment for a Dr. Octopus solo film. What? <laughs> there was always this rumor that Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to play Doc Ock, which I, that might have been his idea. Maybe he was trying to sell that to Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just can't imagine at that time that they would think a like the fact that we have a Morbius solo film now is weird to me. A right. Dr. Octopus film in the 90s? There's no way. But there is also news that a new Superman movie would, quote, cast a far younger Superman who is buff, bad, and dangerous to know, according to Batman producer John Peters. Yes, he who wanted to put a giant spider at the end of Superman lives and yeah. uh, he didn't cast a younger or buff or bad actor he cast for some reason Nicolas Cage uh, <laughs> yeah so it's crazy but Kevin Smith has talked at length about John Peters and uh, so if you need to hear those stories go look it up he will tell it all to you but who else do we have around here talking about their upcoming possible projects Pax? Apparently Michelle Pfeiffer said that she is interested in playing Catwoman again in a solo film if quote they can come up with a good script and then she adds all I know is that Catwoman has nine lives she could get herself in and out of lots of trouble which is not exactly true because yeah she counted down all of her lives in the batman Returns, so i think she only had one left by the end of that <laughs> so one solo film i guess but that was stuck in development hell i, I know i'd heard about it and uh, I, I always wondered if they had a script for it but uh, i would have loved for her to do that well and what's funny about this we just heard about the halle berry catwoman movie it recently came into you know a bunch of more issues we needed for the archives i was showing it off in one of our youtube videos and chris ward former magic words columnist in wizard he actually said yeah so that Halle Berry cover that was a trade because we wanted Batman Begins insider information and they promised if we put Halle Berry on the cover to try and promote the Catwoman movie then they would give us an exclusive about Batman Begins wow. <laughs> so that was ah. the only reason because they're like we had no interest in that movie nobody did <laughs> nope still don't so <laughs> I actually know about the solo um, Catwoman film yeah um, the Michelle Pfeiffer one I ran a across the script years ago when I started finding downloadable scripts online and everything. And I, you know, looking for Tim Burton stuff, I stumbled upon it. It is crazy. It's actually one of my favorite, like never made movies scripts or whatever. Batman returns in particular of that series is like, it just keeps creeping up to be my favorite film in that series because of how wacko it is. And the, the villains taking the forefront and everything. I, I loved that Burton was kind of flipping everything on its head from the first movie. So I was always super curious about like what he was going to potentially do for Batman three or what he was going to do or whatever. So when I, when I ran across the Catwoman script, I was like, Oh my God, this is gold. And for a while I wasn't sure if it was the legitimate one, but like in, in the last few years, Daniel Waters, the guy that wrote it has come out and like basically given the plot details and the script I have matches everything that he's saying. So I'm pretty sure it's legit, but it is a super crazy movie where they take Catwoman out of Gotham, killed by penguin, killed by Batman at Batman returns shot five, times and then she electrocutes herself in max shrek or whatever so like you said she's on her last life but they don't show what happens with her right so this movie picks up where she like washed out 
of the sewers and some Latino lady finds her, takes her to a hospital, and then she has amnesia when she wakes up and she goes back to her hometown, which is like basically DC's version of Las Vegas called Oasisburg. Hmm. And it's this movie is like way ahead of its time. It was doing some of the stuff that Mystery Men was doing, where it was like hyper reality stuff that Burton kind of did like in Edward Scissorhands with the, the heightened suburbia. But the whole movie is basically a Las Vegas that is uber misogynistic run by a superhero team basically that is trying to keep all the women in their place they go out and beat up villains every day which is basically just a show for tourists <laughs> that sounds wild i would love to see that yeah yeah there's some great stuff in it like there's this sequence when she first realizes that she's catwoman because she doesn't realize she's catwoman at the beginning hmm. um she she stumbles upon her suit and like sort of starts remembering and she has like this memory flashback dream sequence or whatever where she's laying on the ground at the end of batman returns and she's kind of like asleep on the ground and this pair of black legs walk up and kneel by her and you think it's Batman coming down to rescue her, but it turns out that it's actually Selena Kyle. So she, there's a scene where Michelle Pfeiffer ends up making out with herself. She kisses herself like a Prince Charming type thing to what? wake herself up. <laughs> but it's Michelle Pfeiffer and Michelle Pfeiffer. So Michelle oh. Pfeiffer resuscitates herself instead of cats licking her and yes, chewing exactly. her fingers to life. Okay. Whoa. Exactly. <laughs> and then midway through the script, she fully comes back as Catwoman and she basically goes to like downtown Oasisburg and she just starts thrashing it, like destroying all these big neon signs and she attacks the superhero group and basically kicks their ass. And then the next day, like the papers and the, the TV, they're all talking about Catwoman coming back. And throughout the whole first chunk of the script, there's all these little scenes where women all over the city are being denigrated by the men that they're with. They're either being forced into shitty positions in their jobs or their husbands are beating them. Or it's like it's just really heavy handed about, again, putting women in their place. And there's this amazing montage sequence where, like in Batman Returns, all these women independently have their Catwoman moment they see these news reports and everything and like they rush out into their closets and they pull out all kinds of weird clothes and they start sewing them together and making their own catwoman suits and making their own homemade claws and whips and tails and all this stuff and basically just independently without talking to each other like attack the city <laughs> they attack all their husbands <laughs> they attack all the men that they come across the best part about that is that sean young could finally get her cameo as Catwoman right? in that scene that's true it was an opportunity for a hundred women including Including, like they could have totally brought Eartha Kitt back because they, yep. they described oh, like yeah. old Catwoman at the time. Julie Newmar could have come back. It, it would have been Spider-Man No Way Home for Catwoman. Yeah, th this feels like, you know, the 30th anniversary of Batman Returns is next year. Michelle Pfeiffer reportedly coming in for that Flash movie with Michael Keaton. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they announce that they're finally making her Catwoman movie, I mean, that's what we're waiting for, right? That Now's the time, guys. Get it done. It could totally happen. She was pretty great in the Orient Express movie, so. All right. Speaking of another superstar of films. So uh, Jim Carrey had reportedly been offered $10 million to do a sequel to The Mask that was planned to start filming in late 1995. Wizard reports, when asked if there would be a sequel, Carrey adopted his best Ace Ventura pose and said a whopping, duh, can't get more 90s than that. But instead, we had to wait 10 years and ended up with Jamie Kennedy starring in Son of the Mask. What happened? According to later reports, after doing a, a second Ace Ventura film, Carrey developed a distaste for sequels and decided not to move forward with The Mask. Mask 2 in 1995, though now he is reportedly open to making a new sequel to The Mask if he finds a director he respects to steer the ship. That does not surprise me at all. <laughs> he had his renaissance with Sonic the Hedgehog, and now he's open to everything. <laughs> yeah, right? and a few years ago he made that Dumb and Dumber sequel. 
We did. Yeah, he finally it is what it is. Yeah. It is yeah. what it is. Um, <laughs> I love the mask, and I would love to have done a sequel back then. Now, it would be interesting to see how that turns out. For sure. Well, I got to put some money in the jar, guys. Just one more time here, because Wizard, it's their fault, continuing to report on Rob Liefeld's journeys <laughs> in Hollywood. Uh, Rob Liefeld. There it is. <laughs> which would ultimately yield nothing. That's still the case at this point in time. So no cartoon, no movies, no TV shows. At this point, Wizards reporting that the Dooms 4 project was, quote, gathering quite a bit of dust at Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, though Profit had just been purchased by TriStar Pictures. And the reporter Tom Russo mentions his surprise that Youngblood hadn't yet been optioned in his interview with Rob. And Rob explains that, quote, well, you could sell single character characters to stars stars want to play them no star wants to share in a team movie so according to rob it has nothing to do with the fact that young blood comics are overstuffed and incoherent i mean yeah. rob if that's what you want us to believe okay you know you just got to go with your solo stars so time will tell if any of these projects ever see the light of day i was gonna say like it's funny listen to this like rob makes it sound like profit is done like it's a done deal yeah. and that's happening and i was just like where'd that go like that he was like this is how and it's happening again now, according to him, with Jake <laughs> Gyllenhaal and Mark Guggenheim. He's the guy who did the Green Lantern movie with Ryan Reynolds, so I don't know if that's so great. But it's still a thing where it's like, it's in development once again, so... Oh, yeah. But he also talks like Prophet is a character that people liked. And I'm right. like, people liked Stephen Platt drawing Prophet. Yeah. That's what they liked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People are clamoring for more profit. Rob. Yeah. I thought more it was profit. hilarious that they found a way to put those giant shoulder pads like somewhere else. They put them on his head, too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have seen one of these characters recently, Pax. Why don't you tell us about the next story? Yes. Yeah, so Venom was rumored to be getting a solo movie written by none other than David Goyer, who is dubbed Marvel Screenwriter Laureate, <sighs> currently writing screen. I know, I know, I feel you. Currently Sorry. writing scripts for Ghost Rider, Blade, Doctor Strange, a Nick Fury TV pilot, and now Venom. Goyer equates his pitch to The Fly, starring Jeff Goldblum, which is quite different from the Venom films we have gotten 20 years later. And I see what he means by using the fly for that I, that's kind of an interesting take on it and you're right is that is completely different than what we eventually get which is more like a like a buddy comedy really. exactly <laughs> so what what are goyer's greatest sins sean that uh, made you exclaim as you Ooh. did uh blade three uh <laughs> didn't he write the ghost rider movies he did uh jeez. Uh, yeah i i don't know i i know he's a t he had what he had input into batman begins i guess that's i mean right. everything he was like the go-to yeah, comic book movie guy for like 15 years yeah yeah and aside from blade like so many of the projects that he was related with or whatever i just uh, I just those are the comic book movies that I just never really gravitated to. And like, again, yeah, I know he was with Blade from the beginning, but as soon as he got like complete control over Blade, it's like that is the worst. Yes, movie. <laughs> yes, it is. All we get out of that is half naked Ryan Reynolds. And I thank him for that. <laughs> What about this no. next piece here, Sean? What do you think of this film franchise? Yeah, so the producer of The Crow is optioning more comics to turn into films. These include Gothic from Crow creator James Obar and Razor by Everett Hartso, which is a female-led project. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that's weird just talking about that. Yeah, which is a female-led project they uh, dreamcast with either Uma Thurman or Liv Tyler. <laughs> I, I don't think reading those comics that Uma or Liv would have agreed. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, someone out there was like, oh my god, Uma Thurman in a porn, Uma Thurman in a porn. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. 
Yeah, no. And same thing with James Obar. Oh, dude, I love The Crow. I love the comic. The movie's different. Uh, I love the movie even more than the comic. But yeah, James Obar, his other stuff, or I don't know, man. I've always wondered uh, about that. I love I love The Crow, too. But and I've so close to like almost reading the comics. I'm like, I need to, I want to see the original one and I just haven't done it yet. But yeah, I was also a little trepidatious because I flipped through one and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to like this. That, that guy's kind of a mess. And like I met I met him once. I met him at one of the first Dragon Cons I went to. And I don't know. I just I never glommed on to any of the rest of the stuff he did. The Crow was very personal. There was incidents that happened in The Crow that were like pulled straight out of his own life. Mm. Um, which I think is one of the reasons why it makes that story resonate as much as it does. The rest of the stuff, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just not a huge Obar <laughs> Well, and it's just, you know, with, with pulling out kind of these random, you know, it's like, yeah, he had one oh, sure, thing, yeah. but you want to adapt his other thing. But I, hey, Sean, yeah, to your knowledge, the rights for Poison Elves, that wasn't available? He couldn't have grabbed those? Oh, man, yeah. How... <laughs> I can only imagine how they would have done the prosthetic ears. Do you think it would need to be live action? Or what if they did it stop motion? Wouldn't have that been interesting? A stop, stop motion, motion Poison been, Elves? Honestly, anim- animation. Like, Poison Elves in anime would work so well. I'm, I'm honestly surprised that something like that didn't didn't happen. I mean, but, with um, how big, like, the goth culture was at this moment yeah. in time. You know, it seems like you could have gotten all the Marilyn Manson fans and everybody else. Poison Elves! Ah. Totally. Well, I, I can tell you 100% why Poison Elves never happened, and that's because Drew Hayes was a mess also. <laughs> nice dude. <laughs> a total mess. Get the comics out. Yeah, and otherwise, okay. Well, finally here, we get the word that Dark Horse Comics adaptation Barb Wire, starring Pamela Anderson, has started filming. You guys, you didn't mention that. That's not a possible CFC episode. <laughs> not mentioned purposely. It's nobody's favorite. Okay. But also, Oliver Stone is rumored to be in talks to adapt Alan Moore's From Hell graphic novel into a movie, which does eventually get made with Johnny Depp, although I don't believe that uh, that was an Oliver Stone joint. No, that was the Hughes Brothers, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But most interesting, there is a rumor of a Shazam TV series that they say takes inspiration from the Wonder Years. <laughs> like, yikes, what? Well, it, okay, <laughs> now, if you think about it, if they if they doing this from the um the perspective of Billy Batson, like, I think that could work. Right? I agree, honestly. At, at first glance, it's like, what? Yeah. That's kind of weird. But then when you think about it, I agree, that could kind of work. But also, them saying that doesn't mean, it's like, oh, that's a great idea, but there's never, there's no way that that would fit. Sure, sure. That, that, that's one of those things that you keep under the, you, you keep under wraps until it, you know, and then and it happens and you're like, you're cool with it, right? Like, yeah, everyone's yeah. cool with this, right? <laughs> But, like, they would have really leaned into the Wonder Years idea, like, in their meetings. But they're like, look, he's aged out. We can't do Fred Savage. Ben Savage is the new Wonderkind. You know, he's he's the boy meets world. Let's get him in there. Ben Savage is Shazam. <laughs> boy I meets mean, Shazam. Work, right? just, as, just as long as he doesn't turn into Daniel Stern when he turns into Shazam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what would have happened. Yeah, it'd have have to be. (laughs) Now, this issue features a casting call for a live-action film based on the Neil Gaiman Sandman comics. Uh, Of course, Netflix (laughs) is now actually putting out a live-action series based on these books, featuring, you know, what I've looked at here is a cast of up-and-comers. There's a few, like, mid-level names. You know, there's, like, Patton Oswalt and Charles Dance and David Thewlis. You know, like, these people you've seen and stuff, they're kind of elder statesmen now in certain 
certain roles, but we're going to take a look to see like how these 90s casting ideas stack up. What they're saying is they obviously imagined this would be a Tim Burton film because it's weird. Mm. <laughs> it's a weird movie. Tim Burton <laughs> doing Sandman. I don't know if Neil Gaiman has said there have been so many terrible scripts he's read over the years, which is mm. why it took this long, you know? I think he's even written some bad scripts over the years, to be honest. Possibly. <laughs> I mean, we can start off right, you know, with Dream with uh, being Johnny Depp again with the, the Tim Burton connection and everything. And at the time, I could see that. I could totally see that. I mean, especially after like Edward Scissorhands and stuff like that. He could pull off the gaunt. Yeah. You know, crazy yeah, and kind of detached, totally. detached it almost thing. it almost now feels a bit on the nose yeah. if you ask me <laughs> yeah but i mean that makes so much sense i mean of course of course it's mm-hmm. and you know death being winona Ryder again that's the uh, other uh, again yeah yeah totally um and and i think she's a pretty great choice for death um i was trying to think i was thinking this is the 90s like feruza balk would have been a good choice as well Ooh. i mean she's a little kind of crazy though i think death is right. supposed to be more demure she's so, more sweet yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> i mean she looks crazy i don't want to say feruza balk is crazy but <laughs> sure i love her I mean, it look would at her be roles, a worst crazy. witch for Isabel. <laughs> she's a little, yes. you know, more sweet. Return to Oz, where she's more innocent. Yeah. There you go. Pre-shock therapy. <laughs> Actually, like, some of this other cast is funny, because I think some of this stuff is, like, literally on the nose, like, where they've got uh, Tori Amos's uh, Delirium. Yeah. Uh, I want to say that's actually probably who Neil Gaiman was thinking when he, <laughs> when he wrote the comics. I know he was a huge Tori Amos fan of Friends. Really? Yeah, so that probably, like, was 100% on the nose. Um, I, I like the uh, Allegheny's as Destiny, because... He, wear, he wears a robe. Yeah, li- yeah, literally, it's just like, here's a picture of, of Obi-Wan Kenobi in a robe, and then here's the character for the comics. He also yeah. wears a robe. <laughs> Nailed it. That was 100% like, oh, we don't know. Find someone in a robe. Yeah. yeah. I, lo- I love Zelda Rubenstein I as despair. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's just the body type apparently is all in, you know, you're just like perfect shape and everything looks just like her. We just had Brian Cunningham on who dealt with these casting calls in the early days. He's like, it had nothing to do with acting ability or anything. It was just like, does this match? Oh, it does. <laughs> I remember, I remember feeling that way when I was looking through the X-Men casting call back in the day. It was like, okay, they got Patrick Stewart. Okay, that totally makes sense. <laughs> looks just like I Professor mean, X. Again, Katie Lang okay. as Desire. It's just like haircut. Haircut matches. Yeah. Sure, sure. But I will say Katie Lang can kind of pull off that androgynous kind of totally. thing. So it's like it, it could work. So this is interesting to me because they, they say for destruction, they're casting Roddy Piper. But that looks like Patrick Swayze to me. That doesn't look like Roddy Piper. I'm sure it's from They Live. It's but just totally the, from they live. Yeah, yeah but the angle of yeah. it looks like, you know, he's got the mullet and everything. I'm just like, Patrick mm-hmm. Swayze? Why are they saying Roddy Piper? <laughs> <laughs> On the next page for Lucian, we have Woody Allen. Uh, well, I think, yeah, we, at the time, I mean, I think his scandal was just emerging at this point. So mm-hmm. Right. Even then, that feels like just, he looks like the picture. So let's, yeah. let's go ahead and use him. I feel like it, you could have substituted in there, just have him shave his mustache. Michael Jeter from Evening Shade. Oh, yeah. You could have played that part. (laughs) Or Elvis Costello. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sounds like something they would have done now. Yeah. For Lucifer, none other than Christopher Walken. 
Yeah, now when did Prophecy come out? Because I feel like this is... Right around here, I want to say, yeah. is within within a year or two of this. Yeah. I think they nailed that. That's Yeah, like that one actually really works. I mean, there's a couple, like... He's, not, Prophecy, he's not Lucifer in Prophecy, but he plays right, that he's, kind of he's, character. He plays Gabriel, but... Uh, yeah. And what's his name? Plays... Uh, uh, Aragorn, yeah. Aragorn. I know, that's what I was going to say. Vigo played played Lucifer in that one, which he, he would have been good too. Lucifer is like my favorite character in these, so I, w- I was really interested to see that. And I thought, wow, they did a pretty good job with Christopher Walken. That's kind of a nice. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you guys think about the casting idea for Kane? I mean, Rickman's great in everything. Alan Rickman is who they pick, yeah. and I I love him, and I like give him that crazy beard. I think he, he'd totally do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very very true. Yeah, he could totally chew the scenery. So, but Abel, Dom <laughs> Deloise, baby, Deloise. Uh, that's another <sighs> body type casting there. Like, I don't yeah. know if I if I'm on board with that. I, I don't know if he would have been comfortable with that caliber, like mixing Dom DeLuise with uh, Christopher Walken. I know, but at the same time, you got to think about it. If he was casting like Danny DeVito, Tim Burton in Batman Returns, you know, true. Like he, he might he might just be open. Just like, let's do a wild take. I mean, not that I think you know Abel was the coward, if I remember in those stories that Kane was always <laughs> killing him, wasn't he? Wasn't yeah. that the deal? So they were always yeah. going with that. So I guess you could just have. <laughs> getting shot or getting hung or whatever and then matthew the raven they're suggesting christian slater so you'd have a little bit of a true romance reunion there with christopher walken and christian slater i like that but at the same time at that point why not just say jack nicholson if you're just gonna go christian slater's voice it's only true true enough burton's got his number just give him a call now that i think about it that's also a reunion with rickman for robin hood uh, prince of thieves yes, so if you got is. christian it's seven degrees of christian slater guys uh, i mean really that's how they casted the movie how many people that worked with Christian Slater. Can we get on yeah. this one? <laughs> yeah, the last one here for Mervyn Pumpkinhead, Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of him now as the Affleck duck. So yeah. I, like, it's hard for me to think of him as anything else. So Oh, Gilbert. Well, that was pretty wild. I mean, you were deep into these and reading the Sandman. I've only read like the first three volumes. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm vaguely aware of these characters. But for those of you listening out there, if you have alternate takes on this casting call, we'll be posting this to social media. We want to hear it. Who's your choice? And would you go with Burton? Who would you have picked at the time? But uh, if you think that's all we have to say about comic book movies in the 90s, you better strap in because we're about to get into our table of contents issue 47 of wizard with a july 1995 cover date features two covers the first is a superman image by tom grummet where the man of steel appears in shadow underneath a giant boulder that he's lifting up he's looking super intense and so this is interesting because this is the first time Superman appeared on the cover of Wizard Magazine. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it basically been around four years at this point, and they had not gotten Superman on the cover, although in the early days, I think they had Bart Sears draw one. They just never used it. Death of Superman had already happened by this point, right? Yeah, so technically they had their Death of Superman special, Mm -hmm. but on a main issue. Yeah, well, I was just like, how could you not have... (laughs) 
have him on the <laughs> cover around the time that you know, on a main issue. Because so far they've been anti DC. They've been so against DC so far. That's true. <laughs> That's like the perception and what happened at this time. We just learned last episode. Brian told us that they had had a falling out with Marvel, so they couldn't get Marvel covers unless they were trading card images. And so, like the tr- Marvel trading cards, they were able to get from Fleer. But if they wanted a Marvel character, Marvel wasn't approving it, so they moved over to DC and were like, hey, let's put some of your characters on the covers. <laughs> and, and to be fair, this Grummet Superman cover, it's a great cover. I love this image of Superman with the dark face and the red eyes. And yeah. I love it. Now, the other cover for this issue is painted by Simon Bisley, who is another artist in this case, instead of just a character they had been chasing since the early days of the magazine. And he, they have him painting Judge Dredd, who is like threatening the reader with a big gun, having just pummeled some mutant cyborg with a nightstick it appears this of course is due to the fact that the live action judge dread movie starring sylvester stallone was coming out in the summer of 1995 at this time uh we're gonna get into that in just a second here but speaking of comics being adapted to the silver screen off the drawing board guys is a look at the trend of comics being brought to life on the big screen in the wake of batman's phenomenal success at the box office in 1989 where it brought in 251 million dollars in earnings so they are exploring the reasons why the trend would happen right so they're saying first of all comic book you have the good versus evil that's easy for audiences to get on board with this guy's good this guy's bad we know who to root for uh or the merchandising that that allows the films to reach a bigger audience and you know just make more buddies also noted though is quote comic book readers are intensely loyal and will attend them them being the films do you guys think that's true like do comic book readers the amount of people who identify as comic book fans really contribute in any significant way to box office numbers even now? I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in there and say, yeah. No. <laughs> so if you just do the math, right? If you look at like in the 90s, like Marvel and DC in the image, if you look at their distribution numbers, right? There are some crazy spikes that were like speculator driven. So you've got like yeah. Spider-Man number one, you've got the X-Men uh, solo issue, X-Force, Death of Superman, stuff like that. Yes, those sold in the millions. But most comics sold between like 100 and 500,000 copies. The bigger ones were closer to five. Most were down lower toward 100 and maybe even less with their distribution. So like even if you take like the most popular comics at the time that weren't just a crazy number one issue or was something that someone was buying 20 copies of, 500,000 was like a number to like to match or beat, right? So that's saying that like this is so popular, that's what it's selling. That means that's largely the comic buying audience, right? Yeah, 500,000 people is not making or breaking a movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> Even if they're going to see it twice or three times at $5 ticket prices or $6 ticket prices at the time, that's like one to three million dollars. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it, I mean, it really comes down like to the filmmaking, right? Because you look at like The Mask was like an unknown comic at that time, mm-hmm. even with comics yeah. fans, but it made $120 million and so they asked the director Chuck Russell what his thought is, like why? Why are comic book movies working now? And he says, quote, there's a new respect for comics and the people who read them. You know? <laughs> and then they're talking to Lori Petty, you know, who started Take Girl, which is an unknown comic that did not do well at the box office, but she says, quote, I didn't really read the 
the comic beforehand, but you can bet that when I got the role, I couldn't put the stuff down. You know, so it's that kind of thing where it's just like, yeah, it's like if you market it well enough and it yeah. looks exciting, that is what is selling it. That makes it accessible to a general audience. But the legacy of that character is isn't really what's driving the enthusiasm and getting people to theaters. So sometimes, right? Because like that's what happened with Batman, right? The, the reason that Batman had the opening that it had is because people had been craving a Batman movie since the 60s. Yeah. And it had just been building and building and building. And Batman was getting big in other media and everything and things like Dark Knight were crossover hits that were hitting people that weren't comic fans and stuff like that. So that, that character was just like primed to explode. But you throw someone like the flash into the mix no no offense packs like <laughs> that movie is not gonna have you know it's not gonna do the numbers right and that's why probably they didn't shoot for a movie and they went for a tv series something that was more safe right mm-hmm. right and, a lot, and um, along those on the other side of the coin like you were saying like iron man that mm-hmm. didn't succeed because of the legacy of the iron man nope, comics nope. Yep. because they were not popular he was not popular before the movie and then that became popular because how good the movie was, which led people into comics after there. So yeah, so, and there yeah. Was, again, there was there was things right. So like with the mask, yeah, that made a ton of money because Jim Carrey had just done two <laughs> successful comedies in the same year, and a third was coming out, and everyone was like, "Holy crap, I'm gonna go see that." I mean, there's there's so many extenuating circumstances. There really is, you know. But it's also, you know, Pax, you were on my Sequel Quest podcast a while back. We talked about Time Cop, which was based on a comic book, you know, and so that they get a quote from Van Damme. He says, quote, it's like when you're playing a comic book guy, you can do anything and people don't question it, you know? So it's just like, okay, that's that's why people are excited. Well, that's why he was excited to play it, I guess. You know, people are totally, like, your yeah. movies are ridiculous, Jean-Claude, but you're in a comic book movie now. But I would say even comic book fans didn't know Time Cop was originally like a Dark Horse Presents anthology comic. It's one of those things, the legacy of that movie is it's one of the few good Van Damme movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody says, oh, remember the comics? They were so good. I, I doubt anybody has sought them out, even. Yeah. No, and I then, tried to. They're impossible to find, by the way. Because <laughs> I'm a huge Jean-Claude Van Damme fan, and I saw that movie in the theater. I had no idea it was a comic till maybe 10 years later. And I was like, oh, that was a comic. And I tried to find it. I couldn't hardly find it at all. And if you look at the reverse, right? Something like Iron Man hits and it does amazing numbers and it starts the marvel cinematic universe and everything but you go the other way and like okay well how did that affect the comics it's like barely yeah like it, it changes the content but it doesn't change the number of sales yeah because they make it look like the movie because that's the popular version mm-hmm. and so like oh now that there's a lot more that's similar to what you saw in the film now but other than that yeah like it doesn't seem to translate to new readers and then ultimately movies that do get made that are based on comics so like barbed wire and judge dread and blade and from hell they don't scream comics to people right it's right. not right. capes it's not real heavy duty costumes you know judge Dredd wears a helmet but that's a uniform you know it's mm-hmm. like so, and, and speaking of Judge Dredd, so he is all over this issue, okay? There are ads for trading cards and the movie adaptation comic from DC and the video game and a statue, but nothing, like no article written or anything about the original comics from England. You know, even DC had been publishing, they did like a Judge Dredd Batman crossover. There's there's nothing in this issue where they're actually saying, here's what you need to know about Judge Dredd before you see the movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious for you guys, what are your thoughts or 
familiarity with Judge Dredd in the comic or the movie? Like, what do you know or what have you sought out about the character? Well, for me, it's funny. As a comic reader, I, I mean, I knew Judge Dredd was in that AD 2000, the UK magazine. And yeah. like, I, I was aware of him as a comic, as a comic reader and go, I'd see him. I never read his comics, though, but I was aware of him when the movie came out. I saw the movie in the theater, uh, the Stallone movie. I don't think it's that bad. I mean, is it great? No, but I, like, I, it, I kind of enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of funny, kind of stupid, but I wasn't like that horrified with it. But I think all the people that are horrified with it read the comic and I never have. So, well, I, I was pretty horrified <laughs> with it. Um, and, and I hadn't read the comic either. Um, my thing was just an access issue. Like I was aware of the character. I was aware that it was a UK comic and all that stuff. There was just no copies available. There wasn't trades or anything in any of the stores that I went to. And again, this is largely pre-internet for me. So it's not like I'm jumping on Amazon and, you know, and ordering something that's <laughs> fairly accessible. It's like, I've just got the copy of Diamond or whatever that my store owners got. And it's like, I've got 10 other comics before that. So, you know, stuff that's already in my pull list or whatever. I just never got around to it. Yeah. Like you say, he was, he was an iconic image that was around, but then, yeah, it was hard to access the stories. If you compare and contrast the two Judge Dredd movies they made, so between Dredd there and Carl go. Urban and that, the Carl Urban one is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. Not, yeah, I am not a fan. Is, isn't Rob Schneider in the... Yeah, yeah, in the yeah, Stallone one. Yeah. Well, I, did, I didn't yeah. say it was a great movie. I just I think it's funny. <laughs> no, I know. It might be the best Rob Schneider film. It's right up there, yeah. The one joke in American Gigolo where he talks about collecting Canadian quarters is the best Rob Schneider film. That 35 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> well, see, here, here's how I feel about the movie is that it's, it's like Blade Runner meets the live-action Super Mario Brothers movie meets Demolition Man. Oh, wow, that's a great description. It's all of those pieces. but it had been done right like that style of movie had been played out by that point so it was just kind of like you know what we've seen all that and it felt like the robocop universe and yeah yeah but like i would say like i i went back just this week because i never got to read the comics either and i started going back to the original stuff that brian boland was doing the original art for the Mm -hmm. first stories and it's fantastic like yeah and the stories are all self-contained they're almost like i don't want to say twilight zone but they have like all these kind of little quirky endings to them almost like an ec comic where Mm -hmm. it's like a real ironic ending for the bad guys that judge dread you know is taking down but there's a really cool one where the he feels like the credibility of the judges is going down you know so the people aren't afraid of them anymore so he just goes in by himself to this war zone it basically just says i'm taking you all out you are going to learn to respect the judges and he just comes in and just cleans house throws them all in a garbage truck like it is an awesome awesome story like so there's some really good stuff there to pull from that's not what they did with the movie but like you (laughs) said the one thing i wanted to mention if you guys knew about the origin of the carl urban dread film Mm -hmm. you know it's just a remake of another film right yeah it's what uh the raid yeah the raid 2 or the raid 2 yeah yeah because i went i went and saw the raid 2 for my bachelor party with my friends Mm -hmm. and then i went and saw dread i'm like i already i just saw this movie (laughs) (laughs) so i haven't i haven't seen the raid yet i was aware of that but i 100 percent love siege movies 
uh, Assault in yeah. Precinct 13, stuff like that. But yeah, it's one of those things where, too, like, if I have to pick between someone like Stallone portraying the character and, like, just Stallone's mannerisms and his, his accent and everything that he uses in that film. Yeah. And Carl Urban, who's just straight up, like, he's not trying to do any, like, he, he lets the mask do the work, which is what right. that character needs. You don't need to outshine the mask. And that's, that is a problem in superhero movies that involve masks. I'm sure you've talked about this before, but there's the, the penchant for, like, you know, actors do not want to be covered up. They do not yeah. want to be in a mask and they well, will you find pay, and, and the studios pay for them they don't exactly. want to cover them up yeah right so you got to find a way to tear off toby Maguire's mask when he's spider-man you got to have iron man constantly yeah i mean my my kids when, when i showed them the spider-man films recently they're like why does he keep taking his mask off <laughs> like there's this scene where he stops a robbery and then he takes the bad guy's car that's a convertible and he rips mm. off his mask as soon as he gets in the driver's seat and starts driving and it drove my son insane he's like everybody's gonna see him what's he doing <laughs> <laughs> Your son gets it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will say that a uh, real quick that John Favreau did a great job by having like the reflection of Robert Downey Jr. in those scenes where he's like talking to his suit. At yeah, least you know, the, at least then he wasn't just pulling the mask straight off. But, right. You yeah. see him inside the suit. Yeah. yeah. That was that, an awesome great, idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, next up, guys, here taking aim is an interview with John Byrne. Ooh, done during a tour <laughs> of his home, which is revealed to be decorated with original art from classic golden and silver age artists like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby and Neil Adams and Joe Kubert. Like, he's got these original pages. Also mentioned are 12-inch statues that Byrne himself sculpted of Hulk, She-Hulk, Namor, Fin Fang Foom, and many others. Just like characters he liked, he sculpted his own statues. I mean, why didn't they just release those, you know, just copy them and make a cast and sell them, yeah. Well, not only that, they go to great pains in this article to talk about all the room that they're and then they don't show photographs from hardly any of it. It's nothing. It's so, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, the only so thing annoying. they show is burn on his staircase and you see the framed art, but it's too far mm. away. So you exactly. can't see what he actually has. <laughs> What I find most interesting, though, like when I think about the one description that was good enough, I didn't need the picture. They said the photo shoot moves next door to Bird's audio visual room, whereas historical ambiance remains at the door. A seven foot tall predator statue dominates the left wall, flanked by even taller shelves crammed with videotapes. They also hold models of the 1989 Batman movie characters, a Captain Kirk marionette and McDonald's Happy Meal toys. That was so exciting to me. Just like. He's got videotapes. He's got all these Batman movie stuff. He's got, because he's holding it up in the picture, so I know which Happy Meal toys. It's the Super Looney Tunes where it was Bat Duck and Super Bugs and all that. And I have the literal McDonald's display right in front of me as we're recording, like, that they put in the restaurant at the time. Like, that's just my favorite thing. And John Bird's holding up a Wonder Pig. (laughs) So cool. (laughs) Bird explains, you know, his origin of comics. He originally found comics through reprint stories of Superman when he grew up in England. That is moved to Canada, where he found the Fantastic Four number five, and then that caused him to switch to become a self-professed Marvel zombie. It's even mentioned that he had just acquired the original art page, the final page of Fantastic Four number five, which he says, quote, that's the holy grail for me. Curious just for you guys, have you ever pursued original art from a favorite creator or a sketch, or do you have a holy grail? No, that's, that's something I never got into, but not because I wasn't interested. I was like looking at it when I went to conventions, and uh, 
uh, it just always seemed kind of like that was something I didn't want to dip my toe in because I could get kind of crazy with it. But yeah, there definitely would have been a holy grail for me would have been some Carmine and Pentino flash art because that's kind of uh-huh. the comic that got me into comics. So I would love like pages or original art from Infantino as drawing the flash. So for me, the big thing that's been a like a stickler for me not actually pursuing it is that I don't feel worthy. Like I feel like if I were to get some of this art, especially from some of the stuff that I want, like Uncanny X-Men uh, 241, one of the Inferno issues, one of the first ones, that was like my first comic book. And I would, of course, I would love any piece of art uh, from that comic. But at the same time, that's so popular and so many people are into that. Like I wouldn't feel comfortable owning something. Like I feel, you know, to... to to quote freaking Indiana Jones, like that belongs in a museum. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I would frame it properly or like, I just wouldn't want to feel like it would just be weird. Right. I've had one experience where I've never actively pursued it, but for a short period of time, I was a part of a uh, poison elves that the, the official poison elves fan group called the guild. And there was a meetup at dragon con. And it was around the time that Drew Hayes first started getting sick and he wasn't making it out to, to the faraway cons like he used to, because I think he was living up in Seattle. And what he did was he had a fan who lived nearby and he basically dumped 75% of his artwork in her lap and said, Hey, take this to dragon con, see if you can sell it. Wow. And he didn't really give her prices. He didn't give her anything. He was just like, just try to unload it for the best you can do. You know, he trusted her to, to, to gauge it or whatever. No one else that did the guild meetup in Atlanta was interested in, in, in looking at it weirdly. Um, but I went with her to her hotel room and she spread it all out on a bed. And I was like flipping through all the artwork and it was amazing. And I wanted a ton of it, of course. And, and every time I would quote something, which I felt was a fair price at the time, um, like, you know, like a hundred bucks a page or, or something like that. She was just like, no, you know, at first she was telling me like 75 bucks would be cool. So I was like looking through for something that I was willing to spend 75 on. And then I'd put, you know, I'd hold one up and she's like, no, that's 200. And every single time. <laughs> so it's like she was a horrible ambassador for actually making him money by selling yeah. money of the artwork. Uh-huh. Um, but I at least got to flip through and hold it all, uh, which was kind of neat. But yeah, I just I just wouldn't feel worthy. Like a Sam Keith original would be just amazing. I just can't even imagine doing it though. I just I, I, I just think if if people don't go out and find Poison Elves after your <laughs> appearance on the show this time <laughs> around, people are gonna be like, "What was Poison Elves?" They're gonna have to go look it up. So that's gonna be great. But no, I, that's that's so cool that you got to at least yeah, like you say, hold it in your hands and all that. I I haven't ever pursued it myself. It's yeah, I like the finish product and i want to read the finished product and i don't necessarily need that you know maybe a mike all red madman page would be fun which they come up from time to time i've seen mm-hmm. them you know around but for me i've been lucky enough you know just with what we've been doing with the wizard files and things like that like members of the wizard staff have kept original art that was you know produced for the magazine and mm-hmm. they've been kind enough to send that over for the archives so now oh. we have like original pieces that were created not covers at this point mm-hmm. but we do have some of like the interior art uh, you know, just it's really beautiful to look at, just the the black and white version of it. So that's pretty cool, man. Yeah. But getting back to Byrne here, you know, he talks, of course, he talks about his career at Marvel on X Men and Fantastic Four, current creator owned title Next Men, and his upcoming run on Wonder Woman at DC, where he's definitely going to change things up. He says, but <laughs> do you guys have a favorite John Byrne book or series or one shot or anything that he's done? When what comes to mind for you? Uh, I mean, for me, like, I, I love Byrne, but I think for me, when I think John Byrne, like, his, from 
his prime for me is his two-year run on Superman and Action Comics. I love those. I bought those off the rack. I have most of them, but I've also bought the collected editions of them. I've read them several times. I, I just love the energy that he brought to Superman and the villains he brought in. And that run, that two-year run um, on Superman and Action Comics were just hands down some of my favorite stuff. For me, I, it begins and ends with his work on the X-Men. That's the stuff I had. I was never a big DC fan, so I never read his, the Superman or his Wonder Woman runs. And I was aware of his stuff on like Alpha Flight and She-Hulk and stuff like that. I just I just never gravitated to that. It was just always the X-Men stuff. But I think I also he, he's another person that I met at a con once and I had a, a very not fun experience with. Yeah. So I also kind of like <laughs> stopped seeking out his work very specifically. So I don't know. That's that's why that's I mentioned that as thing. a creator. I love John. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but he, he even mentions it in the article, right? He says, he's like, look, I'm a curmudgeon. I know people think that I'm just a grumpy guy. That's just how it is. He totally made a kid cry in front of me. Like a little oh, kid. No. Does not surprise me. <laughs> a little kid was in, we were in line to get stuff signed by Byrne. And, um, this, this kid and his father was up and, and the kid handed him, it was like at the time they had, um, reprinted because, uh, the X-Men one had come out recently or whatever. And, Magneto was big again. So they had Marvel had done this like Magneto Zero issue or something like that that had like a chromium title yeah. card and everything. But all it is is reprints of older appearances of Magneto or whatever. So he he handed it up to Mr. Byrne. Mr. Byrne took one look at it and he put his pen down and he reached under the table he was at and he pulled out a rubber stamp that had his autograph on it. He opened up the comic, he rubber stamped it, and he handed it back to the kid and said, I don't sign second prints. Wow. And and that kid, like, I could see, I just saw him, like, crushed. And it wasn't a joke. Like, he was not going to sign that comic. And I just pulled myself right out of the line, and I was like, yep, done with that guy. Ugh. <laughs> uh. That is rough. I mean, but he does definitely come off as that kind of guy. Like, he has his ethics that he just mm -hmm. holds to. What I believe is what it should be, and everybody else is wrong. Yeah. And I'm going to tell I mean, that's what he does, right? He comes on to books, and he says, my version of the history of this character is the one that should be recognized as the real thing, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So he yep. comes he did, in, and he yeah. reestablishes <laughs> everything, whether it's Spider-Man or Superman or whoever, you know? Like, mm. and so I, I think that's kind of, you know, he's, he definitely has the ego that you know allows him to produce as much as he did and to be as ambitious as he was but yeah definitely nobody's favorite guy except for his work you, you can enjoy his work but maybe yep. you don't want to hang out with him speaking of which they did want to get a few quotes from him right they're like look we know that you're <laughs> controversial so we're just gonna have you take shots at people <laughs> or at least we're gonna have you give some thoughts here so we're just gonna go through three of them the people that they ask about so sean the first one was his former X-Men partner, Chris Claremont. What did he have to say about Chris? So he said, I really feel sorry for Chris. He's a classic example of someone trapped by his own success. Uh, so many times I've looked back and thought that the smartest thing I ever did was bail out on X-Men when I did, and I think he should have done that too. 99% uh, of what got me off X-Men was creative differences with Chris, but the other 1% was needing desperately to know that it was the X-Men or if it was me that people were looking at. Again, <laughs> Not shy about it. Very full of himself. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like, hey, I'm a genius because I left what I did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just had to know that everybody knew I was the genius, that it wasn't <laughs> just the characters that were great. So it's like, okay, thank you, Mr. Bird. Yeah. Now, his nemesis at this time, though, Todd McFarland, what did he have to say there, Pax? <laughs> he said, Todd is the infant terrible of comic. It's hard to understand Todd because I don't know how much of Todd is real and I don't know that he does either. Nobody could actually be that proud of being that much of an 
idiot, so it can't be real. <laughs> but who knows? He's outrageous for various reasons, but they're the wrong reasons. They're just stupid. <laughs> and I can't say I super disagree with him on that. Yeah, I was going to say, you know what? He's, he's, not, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. But business-wise, Todd knows what he's doing, man. He will make that money. But finally here, speaking of business, he uh, takes a shot at his former boss, Jim Shooter, who he actually refuses to call by name during the interview. He's always calling him what's-his-name or this and that, you know. So he says here, I feel kind of sorry for Shooter because he did a real good job when he started at Marvel. He came there when Marvel was a real mess and he straightened it out and put it on course, but in the process of doing so, he made himself redundant and he never recognized that. I've always said that about seven years after he got to Marvel, Shooter should have traded jobs with DC Comics executive editor Dick Giordano because Shooter got Marvel to the point where what it really needed was a kindly father figure to keep it on track and it was DC that needed somebody with a death ray. Shooter stayed past the time when he was really a positive force and became a really negative force. Jim was a good friend at the start but it became increasingly difficult to separate the professional from the personal. So the Jim Shooter there's all sorts (laughs) of controversy there but he always says like I don't know why John Byrne hates me but he does. He does. I like what he has to say about Shooter here, because Shooter, very controversial, and, you know, he is what it is. But he he makes a great point here about how Shooter came in, and he was exactly what they needed until he wasn't what they needed and continued to stay there. So, I mean, I think he makes a great point, at least about that. Yeah, it does seem very well thought out in that regard. But, you know, speaking of DC Comics here, you know, you mentioned maybe Shooter should have jumped ship. Man of Today is an interview with former Marvel editor and then current Superman writer Roger Stern who had just written the death and life of Superman novelization because, quote, if a new writer had been brought in, we'd have to say, sure, we could explain it to you. Do you have a couple of years? And it was on the New York Times bestseller list, that book, but Stern is quick to add, quote, you know, Garfield has made that list too. <laughs> now stern had written the avengers and dr strange and amazing spider-man and superman and many more during his career but pax does the name roger stern mean anything to you uh, yes and we've heard it up earlier and i love that we keep talking about it because i want more people to know everyone loves james robinson starman roger stern tom lyle starman great run on comics i love that it actually ran a lot longer than most people probably think i remember seeing that will payton starman in the 90s you know, very early 90s with the War of the Gods that George Perez was yeah. drawing. It was this big crossover and I had to buy the Starman issue as part of the, you know, the tie-in. So it was <laughs> yep. the first time I ever saw that. A lot of people I've talked to about it are like, oh yeah, I remember having to buy the Starman issue in like the Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite. You know, it's like all these <laughs> events that they had to stick a Starman issue in there. So, uh, I mean, at least it got around that way, but I, I bought the actual comic, so I like Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I grabbed a couple of the issues to read just to take a peek because you've always talked about it for all these years i'm like i gotta, I gotta see what it's about and it, you know it's interesting because you know the first costume's horrendous i like oh, it better yeah, yeah. when they change it to black and red <laughs> black and white. And red that's is, better yeah <laughs> yeah but it's so interesting they kind of overdo it with the yeah. superpowers because he can fly he can heat himself up he could do like solar flares and blasts but then he could also morph his face and his <laughs> hair and change his appearance his skin's like putty and he can mold it around it's like it's yeah really, it's still 
totally work. He doesn't have to go to the bathroom. It's just, it's so weird, like, all the little details they add in there. But I was reading in the back of the first issue, it actually said that he was just, like, all these different pitches that had happened leading up to the book coming out. They just kind of mashed together all these other people's ideas and put them into one character and then decided to call him Starman. Yep. <laughs> it, it wasn't like, you know, somebody's grand design. It was like, oh, this is the piece and this piece. <laughs> I think a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It totally feels that way, too. Yeah. <laughs> but it is well written. It is a fun ride to go on. Yeah. Lyle's a great artist and his co- his covers in that are really, really good. I don't want to rain on the parade, but I remember the literal first experience I had buying my own comic books and when I started collecting was in 1988 and I picked up that X-Men 241 or whatever of uh, the Inferno series. I picked up like Wolverine number four and I picked up Starman number one. They were all on the, the rack or whatever. So I, I did get that debut first issue. issue. They put that yeah. on. <laughs> um, but after sitting down in my bed and reading all three, uh, I went with X-Men. So <laughs> well, I, I, I do I'm not, not saying that's that. a slight on the comic. I just remember I don't at the time. That. That, that's tough competition, man. I don't fault you for that at all. But next up here, this is interesting because they have an article called New Kid on the Block, and it is an interview with 17-year-old comics creator Trent Kanuga about his <laughs> indie comic, Creed. Wait a minute. New Kids on the Block, Creed. I'm getting some mixed musical messages here, guys. I don't know. They're kind of... <laughs> I guess Creed was a few years off. But Kanuga, they mentioned, had only started drawing five years before he actually got his own comic published. He said he was using pages he had drawn for a quote typical tights and superhero character called deadbolt and that he was able to get free reign after showing these pages to a publisher from hall of heroes an imprint i've never heard of and he said quote i drew myself as a long-haired comic book character called creed drew him into a dream world and things just started to unfold now the comic sold out its initial 7,000 issue run then got picked up by a slightly bigger publisher lightning comics best known at the this point for nude variant covers as we covered earlier <laughs> and they said they were going to give him a wider distribution which they did but i just have to know do you guys have any memory of creed so i, I do I, re- I remember when this was out um i was again being big into poison i was i was super like transitioning from like marvel to the indies like i was just kind of trying to shed myself of the superhero thing and just stick with indies at the time and i was actively seeking out anything that was hot or big in the indies like i was even trying to, to shirk off image at the time and it was like serious entertainment with Poison Elves and um, Strangers in Paradise with Terry Moore doing his own stuff and just digging into all the weirder stuff. So I definitely knew about it. I never picked it up just because I was kind of at a point where I was maxing out what I could afford on my uh, meager grocery store salary. <laughs> but I was definitely aware of it. And, and I think it's hilarious when, when he's talking about how he had only started to draw only five years before he did his debut issue at 17 when he was 12. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not many of us were drawing when we were two. You know? It's like, yeah. It's kind of wild. That's totally something a 17-year-old would say. His perspective at that point point yeah <laughs> do you remember it pax uh, yeah well i mean it's funny because I, I i do kind of remember it like i didn't get it like unlike sean i was shamelessly mainstream like i stuck with mainly marvel dc sometimes image but i got obscure within those guys but i like a lot of the independent stuff i just kind of i won't say shunned it's just like i just kind of ignored just because it, i don't know it wasn't on my radar but i, I do f- for some reason and i'm trying to remember if my local comic shop he loved independent so he I, he may have had it and that be that must be what i remember it from. Yeah, well, for me, this is another book that 
in the late 90s, I remember seeing in the discount bins. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things that I remember. This kid gets like a lot of play in Wizard for the next few years. Like even in his own comic, I was looking up some issues. There's a, a apparently a contest that's coming up in issue 53 of the magazine. And he's, you know, promoting that inside, you know, the letters page of his book and all this stuff. And what I find interesting, though, is you know, the article closes with him saying, quote, I'd like to go to the Joe Kubert school and learn how to do this the right way. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I think that you got to go with instinct, kid. That's what's yeah. selling. Don't change yourself. But I think I think that's actually kind of an inspired statement because I think he knew that like his style, if you remember, it is like huge feet. Yeah. Big hair. Very cartoony. Yeah. Yeah. And he knew that it was like riding on the wave of the, the Lee Felds and the McFarlane's where you had to come up with a quote unquote style. You probably had to spend a week at least figuring out, am I going to sign my name on the book? Am I going to put it on a piece of scroll floating in the air? You know, <laughs> how are you going to do that? Always go um, with the scroll. Shot. Right. <laughs> so, you know, he at least he kind of knew that, like, there's probably a right way to go further in this business. And then there's, you know, doing what I'm doing, but it's maybe not whatever. Yeah. And, and it does work out for him. I mean, he goes on to do work for Marvel, like Ghost Rider. He drew a lot of covers. His style definitely changes. It definitely mm-hmm. becomes more fine art, I guess you would say, as compared to, I, I almost look at his art like tagging. It's like, you yeah. feel like that's what you would uh, see like yeah. on a brick wall somewhere. But he becomes an artist for video games in the early 2000s on like World of Warcraft and other Blizzard entertainment projects. He's apparently also an instructor these days. So he'll teach you how to draw. So I, I wonder too, if, if he has a connection with Jomad, Madrera, oh, yeah. or whatever, because they, they have similar, but you know, it's like they're different styles, but they're similar. You know, Jomad went on that same path where he left comics and went into video games doing design and, and drawings for those. So like, I wonder if they knew each other, they pulled each other in there, one pulled the other one. Definitely similar trajectories there. But I, I shot, I have to ask a little fun fact as I was looking up the credits in Creed, uh, Jamie Hood was the colorist <laughs> on Creed Comics. You didn't tell us your wife was a comics professional. Right. The amount of difference that can happen between switching an I and an M. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and the bionic woman are like the only people that spell it like J-A-I-M-E instead of J-A-M-I. She's, she's the Jaime. You know what? It's funny too, because he was 17. She was 14 at the time or 13 at the time. Like I, she could have been the colorist. Yeah, why not? Yeah. This next piece, no cover, is just, it's a brief piece about a comics artwork exhibit in New York, like fine art, where interior pages by like Alex Ross and Andy Kubert, Matt Wagner, Mobius, you know, very famous artist in Europe, uh, among others, are presented as, you know, legitimate. You know, th- this is just like any other type of art. So they were, they were doing a display there. So that's nice. But the next one to me that was really wild is called Bite Me Fanboy, B-Y-T. <laughs> And it is a fascinating exploration of comic book fandom on the web using services like CompuServe, Prodigy, America Online, and others. Now, this is after last issue, Wizard had just announced that they were going to have a presence on America Online as Wizard World. And then, of course, they would begin packing in America Online discs with the magazine shortly thereafter. But they go on to say that apparently DC already had a fully established page for their various imprints and they active forums where the creators were interacting with the fans there and so they were very involved techno comics even had an official quote digital fugitive named neurojack 
who was having adventures in their message boards while interacting with those who visited and like basically making giveaways happen and things like that. So I just thought they really were embracing it, these different companies. But I'm curious with you guys, what was your experience connecting with comic book fandom online in the 90s? Did you go there? Yeah, I, I did. Not a ton. There was a handful of uh, sites and places that I went to. The main one uh, I brought up not too long ago was the Guild, which was the Poison Elves fan group or whatever. And I ran across them when I used to. So the first presence I had online was creating an uh, Elfwood account and submitting fantasy art uh, to the Elfwood database <laughs> or whatever <laughs> back in the day. And I met a lot of other Poison Elves fans through that because that was... You know, that's if you're into fantasy and you're doing your own art and whatever, that that's where you're going to find it. Sean, I got to ask, though, did you guys have Flame Wars with the ElfQuest fans? <laughs> <laughs> we we did not, but it was hilarious because I do remember being a kid and, and when I was getting into the X-Men, my best friend was getting into ElfQuest. And I used to make fun of the characters because of the size of their ears. And then I ended up into Poison Elves, which was like yeah. ears that were five <laughs> times larger. And it's like, oh, <laughs> I just didn't get it. But no, I, I also like there was some like private forums or stuff from like websites like I was, again, really into the, the independent stuff. So I loved Evan Dorkin. Him and his wife, Sarah Dreyer, had their House of Fun page like way early in the 90s uh, with forums and stuff like that. So you could interact with them. Uh, I did that a little bit. And I want to say that there was another, another small company forum that I used to go on to, but I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But yeah, that's that's mainly what I did. I didn't do any like trading or, you know, get into any of the bigger publishers okay. or anything like that. Pax, one of the things they mentioned here is that if you are at a college camp, Campus at this time, you probably could get free access to the internet. So did you take advantage of that as you were a college student in these years? So 95, yeah, I was right in the middle of college. Yes, the dorm I was at had two business computers that could get on the internet and you could use. I also, I was majoring in business. So we had business labs, which were internet, essentially internet cafes where you just go in and there's a bunch of computers and they're all hooked to the internet. So you can surf the net. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I did. I didn't get my own internet access to my senior year but uh about this time yeah i would go get free access all over campus um there were a bunch of computers everywhere and i my main access like i did a lot of websites um but really most of my fandom access for any of my fandoms was all usenet like i was 100 percent oh. all in on usenet and i all the all dot rec dot like i did nba stuff i did comics i did star wars like all this stuff was all in the use groups and the usenet groups for just all of that and i would just interact with fans and we would trade multimedia pictures and just all that kind of stuff so I, I was really invested in the usenet at this point and just meeting people that way oh that's cool see it's so weird for me you know because i was in junior high about this time and so like you know, it was becoming a big deal i remember seeing you know america online and all these you know different computers at friends houses who were connecting i think my mom had netscape but no yeah netscape navigator yeah that's what she <laughs> <Yeah>. had <laughs> on her mac but i was only allowed limited access to that so i really comics were a physical medium to me and a face-to-face -face conversation thing until like 2005 or 2006 like i didn't get on the internet in any major way like i had email in the late 90s i was going on kiss fan websites and that's what the internet was for me it's mm -hmm. like i could find out more information about kiss awesome i even got published <laughs> on a kiss fan site once and on kiss asylum i was like i can't believe it like i sent in a story <laughs> and so but but other than that like it never occurred to me to like look for comics websites i don't know why so it's so interesting that i waited so long but yeah that was a big thing and a lot of people found a lot of information and long-lasting friendships for what i understand in those early days on the web 
Totally. All right. Well, guys, uh, I think, uh, you know, we're going to take a look here at one more big item in the 90s, maybe on its way out. So I think it's time we uh, check out Gambit's deck of cards. Ads for Fleer trading cards fill the pages of this issue, including ads for Casper the Movie, a four-page ad for Batman metal cards explaining the process of creating the metal effect. Uh, there's the Batman Forever 95 Ultra set that guarantees one hologram in each pack, which is pretty cool. MTV animation cards featuring Beavis and Butthead, the Max, and others from the network, and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie Fleer Ultra 95 with a pop-up card in every pack. Wow, they were really putting the special cards in every pack in those <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> really. Other sets include the All Chromium Wildstorm Archives uh, X-Files Series 1 Judge Dread cards featuring the original UK comics artwork and possibly the best set of all. Congo movie cards by Upper Deck. Upper Deck of all people doing Congo movie cards. I can't yeah. believe that. I, I didn't even know this existed. I gotta find me some Congo. I gotta get a Hamolka rookie card with the cake. Back in the 90s, Congo was the only movie that I had bought a ticket to, went into the theater, and nobody else bought a ticket. <laughs> the oh, only man. time that ever happened. Private screening. <laughs> All right, Pax, take us into the next one. Also featured is an ad for the Spider-Man Fleer Ultra 95, which is a 150-card set that is fully painted by Nelson, not the twin rock band, Julie Bell, Joe Jesco, and the artist for this issue's cover, Simon Bisley. Uh, subsets include Carnage USA, featuring the psycho symbiote on a deadly road trip, arachnophobias, and more. Special chase cards include chromium masterpieces, gold web cards, clear chrome cards, and holoblast images. <laughs> Lots of extreme 90s cards things going on there. Yeah, I, mean, I gotta tell you, like, this set for me was so big. Like, the, the Spider-Man Flare Ultra 95, I still have my binder full of them. I still have, like, so many doubles, because I just bought these packs as many as I could. Like, this is where all my extra money was going to for, like, two or three months. Um, so the one thing about that, though, that I wanted to mention is that I went on a tirade a few episodes back, and on social media, it's it's been, you know, on my mind, is that Marvel Metal Cards were the cards that drove me out of collecting. That's the declaration I made. And they had come out at this same time. So for the continuity-minded geeks, they said, well, you said you stopped collecting cards, but now you collected this whole set of Spider-Man? I was like, I did, but they were coming out simultaneously, and I'm pretty sure I started collecting the Spider-Man card series first, and then after the fact, I moved over to the metal cards to try something new, and that was the point at which I was just like, oh. But the crazy thing I just remember is like, half these characters, I don't know who they are, because they're all these like supporting characters <laughs> in the Spider-Man universe, you know, and I'm like, I don't know who Stunner is, right, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, so it was, it was kind of an odd thing, but I just have to ask, where were you guys at with trading card collecting in 95, or was that ever a thing for you? Cards was a thing for me, like, for a while I was doing, I did baseball cards for a little bit, not very long, and then moved directly into comic cards, and I did the DC sets and the Marvel set, like the original ones, like the first runs, and then after one or two sets of those, I kind of just kind of faded out of it, but I kind of kept on and would buy a pack here and there of some of these, like, in the so early in the 90s, but once I got into college, like, comics and cards, those just stopped for me, like, I didn't really do them as much, because part of it was access, and part of it 
was just I was doing other stuff. Yeah, so for me at this time, I was heavily into collecting cards. <laughs> Part of it was that I had started playing Magic the Gathering, so cards were just a thing in my life. Um, binders full of card pages and all this stuff. And because of the boom with the Marvel Universe cards and stuff like that, like I was right there for Marvel Universe 1, 2, and 3, the, the first DC set, and uh, G.I. Joe came out with a set around that time. I was buying all of those. So then, since I was already into that, and I was kind of like going over into the more independent stuff, that I just switched over to like the independent trading card sets. Luckily, there was a ton of those. So all my favorite comics seemed to have card sets at that time. Poison Elves, Dawn, Animal Mystic, Madman. At that point, too, I like I lived at my local comic shop. I had just graduated high school and started working at a grocery store on the night shift. So during the days, like I would forgo sleeping and then just spend all day at the comic shop and then go back to work. <laughs> Some days. So like and it was kind of cool because the the owner that owned it at the time had just bought it from some previous owners. And like the previous owners, one of them was like that was his thing was cards. So he had invested a ton of money when the Marvel Universe cards came out into like all kinds of older sets and everything. He just thought it was the future of the medium. So he had like this new owner had inherited just like tons of boxes of cards and he didn't give a crap about any of them. If it wasn't Magic the Gathering, he didn't care. So he would let me just sit there and sift through them and pick out whatever I wanted for free. So, wow. Yeah, I, I just ended up with all kinds of like random stuff that I wouldn't have necessarily got. Like I never got holograms when I bought packs of Marvel cards, but I got all my holograms through just s- siphoning them out of those boxes. <laughs> wow. That's well, that is the dream of every kid of that era. Man. Right. I mean, I felt enough packs. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I had all these miscellaneous cards at the time because, again, I was into to Sam Keith and Mike Allred and Arthur Adams. So I would pick through all these sets to find like that one Arthur Adams card in the Vampirella yeah. set or the you know, the one Allred She card or something like that. So yeah, I had I had a ton of cards. Still have them. They're in a box somewhere. That's so cool. Also, that you've been able to hang on to them, man. Yes, man. I, I can't imagine. It's like, hey, just take what you want. Yeah. Like I, the one, the only lucky thing I've had in that vein is that my buddy's dad ran a printing company in the '90s, and they printed a ton of the Marvel cards for them. Oh, nice. And so he told me this. Like, I know I've known him for 20 years. He just told me like last year. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you don't, what? Like, <laughs> I, I could have been going to your house all these. And so he went and got his dad's stock and he sent me a full set of the Marvel Series 2 holograms. Oh, nice. I was like, oh, thanks, man. That makes up uh, for it. I think that totally makes up for you. Yeah. <laughs> there was definitely a lot of hype around the cards. And so mm-hmm. we're going to wrap up tonight with uh, Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Now, Todd's ego column this month is an open call to comic book readers to write an essay about what their local comic book retailer does to earn their business. He wants an explanation as to what they're doing that makes the readers continue to frequent their shops. Obviously, we now know why Sean was shopping where he was living (laughs) part time. (laughs) But Pax, for you, did you have a dedicated store that meant a lot to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was probably 30 minutes from my house, but that was the closest one. And it was the best one. Curious George's comic and Arcana. And this guy, like, it was a pretty good comic shop. It had new releases, but then the bins were really good. Like, I liked searching the quarter bins that he had. And he was really good about picking wall comics. So he had always very interesting things to look at on the wall. It wasn't just, you know, the Platinum McFarlane Spider-Man. So, like, I remember he had an amazing Fantasy 15 at one point. 
and like early Daredevils and early Avengers. And so like it was, he was always really good about picking that stuff. And it was a great place to go, had a cool atmosphere. This guy was bizarre though. I mean, he was just this weird dude. I remember him. He was the one that told the story about, I remember when The Flash was airing on TV in 1990. And he was the one that told me the story about like, and I think it was the third episode. It got preempted by, I think it was... It was Bush puking on one of the prime ministers. <laughs> the Japanese yeah. emperor, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the emperor. Yeah. So, like, and so his story was, it was like, you know, that didn't. They preempted it. So now that taped over the episode, there's that episode doesn't exist anymore. You'll never see that episode again because it doesn't exist. And I was just like, really? <laughs> I'm just like, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm sure the actual studio doesn't have a copy of that episode. So, uh, which I've had the full set now, so it's there. But he always had yeah. stories like that, making pipe bombs and uh, telling us <laughs> how great he was and college but he never graduated college but he was he loved telling us how much he how brilliant his papers were this guy was a character so it was always fun to kind of go there and hear him just talk about crazy weird stuff so that was my favorite place to go i went there as much as i could oh that's wild i mean like because for me i never really connected personally with any owners or you know staff members of comic book stores to me it was just about back issue selection like you said pax if they had giant bins that i could just spend an hour going through on a Saturday. Like, that's what I wanted. I just wanted to to just absorb the history of comics in those bins, and I would buy, you know, a few titles that were new, but that was definitely not what I was there for, and I wasn't there to make friends, you know? So that's the wild. The the store that I was talking about before was called Dark Adventures, and I first moved to Georgia in 1990, and again, there was a series of different owners over the store. So, like, for the first five years that I was in Georgia, it was this guy named Vaughn that owned the store and he was like an ex hippie smoked all the time in the store. So it was like that mildew smell filled with the smoke smell and everything. (laughs) But that store was such a haven. um, And he was so like nice and patient with the kids. Like I saw him getting pissed off at more like adult customers that would come in, but like he had this patience with the kids where he just wanted to impart his knowledge. He was more of like a golden age collector and he had a side business where he sold and he did this for years, I think up until just recently where he sold like big ticket books to actors and stuff like that. So that's kind of like the side business he had going on. But because of that, he had the money to put into his store and he didn't need to like push the stuff that was hot and selling or whatever to make the money. So he would always point us in the directions of some of the weirder, more obscure stuff, which was cool. And they always had like a sale every other Wednesday where like they would close the shop at eight o'clock and only subscribers could come in and there'd be like a ton. Like he'd put out, you know, two tables full of like graphic novels or whatever at the time and like have them 50% off. So all my money from like 1990 (laughs) to like 1997 or so went to dark adventures. I swear. Like I helped, I definitely hope that place stay in business later on. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and like I said, I, I totally, totally lived there. When when he sold it and the next guy bought it, at that time again I was into Magic the Gathering, so I like I became an official Magic the Gathering certified judge so that I would run tournaments Whoa. for him on the weekends. Nice. And in exchange, um he'd let me go through and, you know, pick a handful of comics out of the quarter bins or the fifty cent bins or whatever. So that's where I was like able to just scour over a ton of you know crap and find all these weird, obscure, like this one issue of black belt radioactive hamsters that Sam Keith did a pinup in or something like that. Like I just, like I said, because I lived there, I could just spend hours searching for these. Comics. Yeah. So you were working for peanuts. You were working for comics. Totally. 100%. 
<laughs> Continuing on with the Todd information here. So Todd reports that the live action Spawn movie will be in movie theaters by summer of 1997. And that's exactly what happens. Todd says it, he delivers, uh, which is really refreshing when all of his other image cohorts are talking big, but have very little or nothing to show for all their hype over the years. <laughs> now, McFarlane mentions that in the meantime, an HBO animated series is coming in 1996, which is also something that arrives and to great acclaim. So yeah, you could count on Todd. Whatever you think about his opinion, <laughs> maybe the comics are going to be a little late, but all the other stuff right. he will deliver. Unlike Leefield, like he's not, it's not all smoke and mirrors. Now in Jim Lee news, Alan Moore is writing a soft reboot of Wildcats, which is just one of many Alan Moore projects at Image. He was also writing Spawn Blood Feud, and he wrote the Violator miniseries and Supreme for Extreme Studios and many others. He would kind of be pulled you know, back and forth to different titles for periods of time at Image. So he was definitely a favorite among them. But speaking of Magic the Gathering there, Sean, Jim Lee is releasing his his own card game called Wild Storms, the expandable superhero card game. Did you ever have tournaments outside of Magic at the store? Did they do Overpower? Did they do Wild Storms? <laughs> no, no, we never, we never got into any of the other CCGs. Okay, I think they sold a lot of that stuff. We just never never played them yeah I, I doubt it was ever popular enough to get enough people into play so most shocking of all though for our purposes here is that jim lee is once again absent from the top 10 hottest artists list todd remains where he has always been the number one spot but jim lee guys has he dropped out for like six months then he showed up for like two months and then he's gone again so i don't know what was going on i mean there was the theory floated last episode that he just he wasn't actually drawing anything so yeah. he could be considered a hot artist. So. I was going to say that. Yeah, that was around the time when he was just doing covers, right? Really, it just seemed like he was just the head of Wildstorm, and he was, mm -hmm. you know, hawking his products and adapting them to other things, but he wasn't, you know, doing the day-in, day-out work, which kind of seemed to be the track that all the image guys were going on at this point. It's just kind of like, okay, I have my studio, and I have all the guys that work under me, and they do the house style, or they bring, you know, something that's, you know, close enough to what I like, and they're just going to run with it, and everything Everybody knows it's basically me, but it's not me. <laughs> so that's kind of how it was running. And despite the fact that ads for Wildstorm comics, toys, cards, and characters are all over the place, you know, battling with Judge Dredd for space in this issue, Jim Lee's name, though, is barely <laughs> mentioned as the creator of all those properties. Branding, Jim. It's called branding. <laughs> you got to get your name out there. Why do you think Rob Liefeld... There's still somebody we talk about. He will tell you everything he created over and over again. So that brings us to our tally. In this issue, Jim Lee mentioned only two times. Todd McFarlane is mentioned five times, which brings our running total to Jim Lee, 268 mentions. Todd McFarlane... 285 guys this has been so much fun i'm so glad we got a chance to talk and it's always great having you on i mean even better when you're together so thank you for <laughs> for joining me again and yeah just getting geeky there's so many stories that you guys have that are just fascinating to me but why don't you guys tell people a little bit about your other projects together and otherwise pax why don't you tell them where they can find you on the web oh you can find me on twitter under my name paxton holly p-a-x-t-o-n H-O-L-L-E-Y. I do a few podcasts, a couple of them with uh, Sean over there. We started Cult Film Club several years ago. We are in that, like the 50s or in the 50th. Like, so 70. Uh, we're, 
70th? Are we on the 70s? <laughs> We've been doing Jamie, this a Jamie while, did the like, same thing the other night. <laughs> it's like it feels 50, yeah. but it's actually 70-ish. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a compliment to the two people I am doing the show with. So, the fact that we've been almost doing it for a decade <laughs> is what makes it feel like we should. I mean, really, 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 really is. And uh, the other one Sean and I do together is, and Michael May, we do a horror podcast. During the holiday season, it started this year, and we're going to do it again next year. It's called Crestwood House, and we're going to cover early classic, like pre-1980 horror movies, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, stuff like that. So we, we do nine episodes, and we each pick three movies, and we cover them all. Those are the two I do with Sean, and I do a couple other arts on my own, but th- those are the big ones. And Sean? You can find me on Twitter at Sean Robert. I just recently rebranded everything, so you can find me on Instagram at Sean Robert. Uh, Facebook, I think, is even Sean Robert. It might, be, it might still be branded in the 80s. Barely use Facebook, though, so yeah, don't go there. Um, <laughs> but mainly Twitter these days. And yeah, I mean, I've got a website, BrandonIn80s.com, but it's kind of shuttered. I'm kind of in between website projects right now, besides the uh, podcasting stuff that I do with PAX. But thinking about maybe uh, launching something new soon, so Ooh. follow me on Twitter and <laughs> if it's intriguing at all. <laughs> and of course, if you guys have any Poison Elves original art and you're looking to sell it for a reasonable price, find Sean Robert. <laughs> <laughs> Drew Hayes is totally not dead, and he will totally draw more. <laughs> He's totally dead. There's no more art. But what's definitely not dead is Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. You know where to get in touch with us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Of course, you can find us on YouTube at Wizards Podcast. And speaking of YouTube, I think it's time to spill the beads for episode 48. We have a very special guest coming on from the Toy Galaxy YouTube channel. Dan Larson will be joining us. They recently did a whole video on wizard and he was kind enough to shout out the podcast and so we invited him on let's talk wizard let's find out where dan falls into the world of 90s comics so that's going to be a lot of fun look forward to it but until next time keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.